Lord, we ask that today you will make your presence known to us. Clear our minds for what you have us to learn and help us to apply what you are teaching us. Help me to be clear in teaching what it is that you want me to say. And help me to remember the words you would have me use. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A little bit of review about last week. If you recall, we had four sections. Creature, sinner, sufferer, and saint. And we learned, that first of all, that we were, were all saints. Uh, let's start with creature. Being a creature means that when it comes to money, you and I weren't designed to find our own way, to make it up as we go along, or to write our own set of rules. In fact, being a creature means that we have no ability to understand anything fully and correctly without the essential help of God's revelation. Sinner. When it comes to money, to acknowledge that we are sinners immediately confronts us with the fact that we need more than a food accountant and a wise budget. If wise life strategies were all we needed, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus wouldn't have been necessary. Suffer. Uh, Romans 8, 18 to 23 makes it very clear that we live in a terribly broken world. Paul says there, there that the whole world is groaning as we, eagerly, as we wait eagerly for redemption. You groan when you're in pain, you groan when you're discouraged, you groan when you're overwhelmed, and you groan when, when you're suffering. Every day you awake to a world that is broken and groaning, and nothing in your life will escape its brokenness. This means that if you're not suffering now, you're near someone who is, and if you're not suffering now, you will someday. Because the brokenness of the world, it is impossible for your conception of money not to be shaped by your identity as a sufferer. Saint. Saint isn't shorthand for forever revered Christian hero. In the Bible, saint is shorthand for those who have been rescued, redeemed, forgiven, and are being restored by the grace that is theirs because of the life death, and resurrection of Jesus. In other words, by biblical definition, all true believers in Jesus Christ are saints. This means that you have the full right and privilege of approaching your money as a saint. Why? That's, that's a, in a nutshell what we talked about last week. And this week we're going to, to move into us story about the fall of Adam and Eve, and I gave you some homework, and I asked you to read uh, Genesis chapter 3 so that we didn't have to read the whole thing here today. But to start off with, I'm going to introduce, uh, I'm going to start with a, what I'll call the verse of the day. It's Luke 16, 11 through 13. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. As we are reading through this, I ask that you um, think about how it applies to you. 
and please share it with us so that we can learn from your experience. And the story begins with the fall of Adam and Eve, and that's where we're going to start reading here. It really was true. They had it all. They lived in a beautiful part of the world, really too beautiful for words. They had jobs they loved, doing things that made a difference. They had a wonderful marriage, free of accusation, conflict, and division. Every day was filled with beauty, purpose, and love. You and I would look at their lives and wish somehow, some way, we could enjoy the same. Not only were things horizontally peaceful and right, but they were vertically right as well. More important than the love they had for one another, they also lived in loving and worshipful peace with, with God. You simply could not imagine finding yourself and your loved ones in a better situation than theirs. Yes, they had it all, but sadly, all sometimes is not enough. In one single act of arrogance, defiance, and rebellion, they lost it all. There is no sadder moment in scripture than the moment when Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. Their world was damaged, their union with one another was damaged, their relationship with God was damaged, and damaged passed down to subsequent generations is breathtaking. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but that single act of disobedience provides volumes of insight into how we, too, ourselves, get ourselves into trouble and turn God's good things into bad things. In fact, I think there are a few stories in the Bible that provide more help for understanding our money problem than the story of the fall of Adam and Eve. And Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Okay, today we're going to be covering eight takeaways from this uh, section in in the Bible. Uh, There are eight, but we're going to do four today, and we're going to do the other four next week, and I hope that has allowed us a little time for more time for for discussion and hearing what's going on with you. So now let's move on to uh, the first one, which is they listen to an alternative voice. We miss so much in this historical account because this story is so familiar. The first thing that ought to jump off of the page is that Eve was even willing to have this conversation with the serpent. Why would she be interested in an alternative voice offering a radically different view of life from the one that God had given her? Why did she not run the minute a snake began to talk to her? Why didn't she defend what she knew was true? It's easy to look back at this moment and see the disastrous mistake that Eve made, but it's not as easy to admit that we are more like Eve than unlike her. 
You may be wondering what this has to do with our struggle with money. It gets to the heart of how we get ourselves into the money trouble that produces heart unrest and relational stress and robs us of our ability to live generous lives and contribute liberally to the work of the kingdom of God. There is no topic more talked about by Jesus than the topic of money. And if you stay within the borders of the wisdom of what he said, you will avoid the money trouble in which so many of us find ourselves. But there is a voice to which we are tempted to give precedence over the voice of the Lord. I'm not talking about the voice of the devil. I'm talking about our own voice, our very own voice. I've said before what I'm about to say, but I think it's particularly important here. No one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more consistently than you do. You are in an unending conversation with yourself, and the things you say to you are formative of the desires, choices, decisions, and actions you take. Your inner conversation really does shape and influence everything in your life. This influence is particularly seen in how you view and use the money that God has placed in your care. When you are at the mall and something you don't really need but really want has caught your eye, the decision to buy or not buy will be determined by one of two voices. You will listen to the protective voice of your Lord, who has said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, or you will listen to the desires of your own heart and the logic you give yourself that makes this purchase acceptable to your conscience. When God brings to you, when God brings before you a needy person, you will argue, argue inside yourself that you do not have the wherewithal to give, or that there is another way this person will be taken care of, or you will submit your choice to the wise words of Jesus: "Give to the one who begs you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you." Okay, now it's time for you to share your experience. How have you ever made a poor choice? Simple question. I know I've made plenty. I've already told you about one of mine. No? Okay, Steve, thank you. <laughs> so I've learned uh, that the things that I want to do often go against, if, if I make a bad choice, it tends to consume my whole being. I want to either try to make it seem like I didn't do it or just get so consumed by doing it that it, I would justify it to do that. So in my life, I've done a lot of, uh, I waste a lot of money on going to movies and just whatever. And sometimes I didn't go to church because it conflicted with what I wanted to do and just ignored it and tried to pretend that I didn't do anything like that. But I don't know, just waste of time, waste of money. So. I'm not super thrilled to confess this. <laughs> my husband knows. <laughs> I don't know if my son knows over there. Um, when I was newly married in our first year of marriage, um, I quickly learned that um, I spend money way differently than my husband did, and he was a saver, and at the time I wasn't. Um, 
And so I thought, you know, I'll just get a secret credit card. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, it was bad. And the Lord revealed it very quickly um, because, I mean, and I thought I was uh, being very careful and paying it off. And um, it, no, not the Lord revealed it very quickly. And um, I still remember that. And actually, uh, the way that he revealed it is um, God's way and his timing. And it was um, a good reminder and I will never do that again. <laughs> and I don't recommend it to anybody. <laughs> you know, Paul, we have a culture that uh, the worldly culture that screams immediate gratification. Buy now, pay for it later. And so we're constantly fighting that. And I, and I don't think there's anyone in here that doesn't fight the marketing that you hear constantly that you can do this. Everyone else is doing this and this is right. And there are, you know, it's, I'm not saying that you can't, uh, like if you had a credit card and you're paying off at the end of the, of the month and you're, you're beating the game by, by getting all the points and you can use the points, that, you know, that, that seems like that is, is acceptable and, uh, and, you know, wise use of your money. But it, it's hard to stop there. And all of a sudden, you st- the, the, the credit card keeps seeming to get an, uh, a balance that, gets, that grows and whatnot. Again, because of a culture that says, you deserve it. Everyone else is doing it. It's the right thing to do. So I've fallen to that before, absolutely. Well, Dave Ramsey says if you can't pay it off at the end of the month, you cut it in half and throw it away. There you go. (laughs) Okay, let's move on to the next one. They wanted what was prohibited. There is a question that should greet you as you read this account of the temptation of Adam and Eve. Why did Eve ever entertain a conversation about something that God had clearly prohibited? Eve's conversation with the serpent was not about a morally gray area. God had marked his direction to Adam and Eve with one main prohibition. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Pause and think about this for a moment. Not only did God say, don't ever eat from that tree, but he followed it by saying, if you do eat from it, you will die. You would think that this would have been a case-closed issue for Eve. No need to think or converse any more about it, and no need for any internal debate. The only explanation for Eve's willingness to have the conversation with the serpent is that despite God's warnings, Eve was already thinking about it, considering, and even beginning to desire what God had clearly prohibited. An important and practical question to ask yourself again and again is this. In what ways is my life troubled by wanting to use my monies, my money in ways or for things that God has prohibited? There is a corollary question. Where, when it comes to my use of money, have I failed to heed God's wise and clear warnings? Well, the next question is probably a little more difficult. So I hope you maybe will chuckle when you hear it. Can anyone think of something silly you wanted in the past that was clearly prohibited by God. I think maybe the word "silly" is is uh, should, should might trigger some thoughts. You know, I, I can help. Maybe Dennis Grant with his uh, sports cars and love for for vehicles could appreciate this, and maybe there's other guys in here 
But there's a whole lot of parts for an old Mustang that I had that uh, got on the vehicle a lot sooner than I had the money for because it was wonderful. It was the feeling of, of driving down and having that car that I had since I was 17 years old. You know, you wanted to keep that dream alive. Um, yeah, I would say that's absolutely sinful. And we had to start budgeting for that kind of stuff rather than just getting the fun parts and driving it. Dennis, I don't know if you've ever experienced those kind of issues. Not with car parts. Um, a, qu a question comes to mind about this issue. Um, is it necessarily sinful to buy something that you later regret buying? Um, for example, the timeshare situation. Many people like to take leisure, go on vacation or whatever. Is that, I don't know if that's inherently sinful, but whatever we specifically purchase for that, we later regret. Is that, is that in itself a sinful thing? Or buying a lemon car, you know, is that, is that a, I don't know, that's just a question that I had. <coughs> well, I think the lemon car or the timeshare that you found out in the lemon situation for you, um, that, you know, it, it, it became a lemon. It, the car, buying a car isn't necessarily evil, but the re you can regret it. Had, we've all done that. You got the big purchase. You were so sure it was going to satisfy you. And then all of a sudden, you, you make the big purchase knowing that you can afford it and it's okay. And then all of a sudden, man, that sticker shot regret. You're thinking, what was I thinking? And yet, it wasn't necessarily sinful, but now you're going to pay for that decision. One of the rules that Crown had about spending was, I heard my thought go, is that if you, you should buy assets that appreciate in value, not assets that don't. And one of the problems you can get into a lot of times with some of these purchases is that... Um, they require that you uh, incur debt in order to get them because they cost too much for you to pay cash out of pocket for. And that's uh, clearly prohibited by the Word of God. To, to, for, uh, debt, is to, he says, to owe no man anything except to love. And uh, that's where uh, the purchase becomes something that is against his will is because of the fact that you had to borrow money to... To, uh, to buy it. Anyone else? Lita? I think of my father and mother who lived to 99 and 105 through World War II when I was born, through the Depression, and of how great in watching their lives in retrospect they handled money related to biblical principles. Um, my father saved all of his ration coupons his entire life. And I would look at them in his well-manicured desk drawer, clipped together, and I thought, why did he save those? But I would look at those frequently as I grew up and as I began to care for them in later years. It just brought me to tears because I knew that they knew what was appropriated for them, the tractor for the tire, tire, tire for the tractor, and um, the amount of sugar or whatever it was. But I also knew that they gardened and they raised animals. And if the neighbor had not, they gave, not expecting anything in return. Um, 
they didn't think twice about it, and oftentimes that was sacrificial. Um, and I, I think we have so much to learn, as we said, this gratification society we live in. I just ordered a couple things online because I was tempted. I think, well, my, all my family orders online. I'll try that. I've never done that. I have to do it with Paul's help because I'm not computer savvy, but I did. And I instantly regretted it when it came. I thought, why did I do that? I could have given that money to, you know, Arizona Center for Policy and so forth. So different. I was just very upset that I had done that. So, yeah, we are tempted and we do fail. But I think that generation, they had to be tempted also to maybe hold what they had, but they didn't, you know. So I can learn a lot from them. Over here. Nick. There you go. Thank you. So I have a question. Um, you mentioned, like, you know, not to have any debt. Does that include, like, buying a house? Because I feel like that's something where debt is kind of inevitable. I could not hear that. The, the mortgage. Is that, is that something that prohibited getting a mortgage? Well, I think you can rationalize that one fairly easily because uh, you can't, most of us don't have uh, the cash to, to buy from it. It, it. it is an appreciating asset most of the time. And uh, if you can't handle the mortgage, you can sell the house. Whereas other things that we buy uh, and create, create debt for, we, we have the debt, but we can't sell the, the, whatever it was uh, that we bought to, to pay the debt off. So that's, that's a big difference between uh, mortgaging your house versus taking a loan out for, for something else. Okay, thank you. I think in the Old Testament, when it talks about bond servanthood, we don't really, we're not very familiar with that. But like, when you think about it, when you enter into a mortgage with a bank, you're the bond servant to the bank for the next 30 years until you pay it back. And so it's like, it's not a bad thing. And I think it's a, it's a good thing to, you know, A, be a lender and allow people to acquire wealth and give, provide for their family as they need and work, you know. But then B, it's okay to be a, a debtor as long as you're not overextending yourself in that debt. But anyway, I just think that it's one of the, I've had friends who are like atheists and they're like, well, there's slavery in the Old Testament. And it's like when they think slavery, they think like Americanized slavery. But it's like, no, there's still bond servanthood today. It's just, I mean, if you don't pay your mortgage, they take the house from you. You know, it's not like you're, like you are a servant to that, to that lender until you pay it off, you know. So I just thought that was interesting. You warmed up the, uh, the engine here. Now we got people uh, <laughs> volunteering. Um, I think uh, Dave Ramsey's, uh, as far as mortgages go, really try to pay a large down payment, like maybe 30%. So that's one way. And then the other way is to make accelerated payments. So that way you get that paid off. So you're not that 30 or 15 year. And those are, those are doable things. Yes. PJ wants. Yeah, yeah I think. 
<clears throat> excuse me, I think we have to be really careful here. Um, the systems of money have changed over time. Um, capitalism versus mercantilism, feudalism. Um, the world is very different, and there are Christians living in communistic cultures whose rules about money or how they can interact with money would be very different. Um, and specifically, I think of, of Romans 14, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy the one uh, for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Um, and so it, in my mind, um, I think you have to be careful setting rules around money. Maybe for yourself personally it makes sense to, and if you have convictions on the use of money, having rules makes sense. Um, but I would say even within what we see spoken about in about money, there's a lot of wisdom, but maybe not as many hard rules on money. Because um, otherwise, yeah, you start getting into, well, I can't afford a home, so I'm going to get a mortgage. But why, why are you allowed to do that with a home? Why not a car? And why not the next purchase on Amazon and things like that? So I would say there's a lot of wisdom here, but be careful setting hard rules, um, especially when the rules and society of money is very different in its operation today versus others. Um, uh, the, the most tangible example I can think of is if you own a business, it'd probably be rather unwise not to use debt. You, you should be using debt um, almost always in the case of business ownership. And um, so anyway, be, care, be careful hampering yourself in with hard rules that if you do this, this is a sin. Perhaps for you it is, perhaps for someone else it's not. Let's move on to number three. They thought they knew better. Between the already of our conversion and the not yet of our home going, either our lives are shaped by the submission of our hearts to the stunning wisdom of the Lord, graciously laid out for us in this world, or somehow, some way, we are telling ourselves that we know better. Adam and Eve disobeyed God because at some point they began to think that they knew better. Seeing themselves as smarter than God, they believed that eating from the tree rather than resulting in dreaded things would deliver them to good things. Sin always has us assuming we know better, and embedded in that assumption is the belief that God things, or I'm sorry, that good things can result from what God says is bad. Every sin dethrones divine wisdom and enthrones human wisdom. So it is with money. Every misuse, misuse of money begins with elevating human wisdom over the wisdom of God. Every bit of money trouble begins with assuming that something God says is bad isn't so bad after all. Every instance of paralyzing debt begins with denying human foolishness and minimizing the protective value of the wisdom of God. There is nothing more dangerous to our financial well-being than thinking if for even for an instant, that we are smarter than God. Wow. Our next question is, how have you rationalized a purchase in the past in believing you knew better? 
our first rationalizer. <laughs> Won't be the last. <laughs> oh, when Gerald and I were newly married, we had um, our family come to us and say, we're all going to go to Disneyland together. And we set a time, and it was going to be right around Christmas. And Gerald and I looked at each other and said, we do not have the money for this trip. But we have a credit card. So, of course, it must be a really good thing for us to go and spend time with our family. And, and so that was our rationalization, is that the family was more important than being responsible with the money. And the thing was, it was a nice time. Um, but when we got home, and it took us a long time to pay off that trip, long after those nice memories were gone, um, it was a pretty bitter pill to swallow. And we had said many times to ourselves, we, we should never have done that. But again, that was the rationalization up front, that because it was family, that should be better than how we were going to pay for it. Just, just, yeah, and I, I think, you know, just keeping in mind what PJ said that, you know, sometimes it's a matter of the heart and something that might be okay for somebody else may not be, you, you may not have permission to do. And, and I think that's where we have to be mindful of the spirit, um, you know, in, in, in the circumstance. And your motives make a big difference in, in, the, in it. If your motive is to have a bigger, nicer home than somebody else, uh, that's not a good motive. Cindy, um, building on what you said, um, certainly Cindy and I have rationalized for family as well. Um, but at, what I found out over time is there was a deeper sin behind it for me, and that was the desire to be liked by men. Men were my, and my family was my idol. And it came from a big family. You've all heard, you know, oh, you, know you can hear the pride and the, the blessing of the big family. Well, that big family can control you. And when they want to do things and you're not a part of it, well, why would you not be part of the family? And I mean, this is so many different ways. This, the money was one way for that sin of idolatry of the, the fear of man over God to manifest itself. So I can certainly relate from you. And I, I made family an idol. And I was dealing with my uh, uh, fear of man. Yeah. Anybody else? Yep. Yeah. Well, this might be a, a bad question, but like, can't that go the other way in saying that sacrificing that time with your family is showing your love for your money over your family? Do you mind if I jump in, Paul? Go ahead. I couldn't um, quite I, I hear it. You used a good word a minute ago. Motive. Um, my motive would, was I want to be liked by the family. If you agree that it's, it, you're willing to make the sacrifice... And it's a good thing because the family, there might be a family member that has a great need because um, they're down and you're going to minister to them in that family setting or, you know, there's an injury, there's a death, there's an illness. You know, you see it as that way and that's a sacrifice for it. Then your motive's completely different. So your motive had an effect on that. Mine, and I'm assuming Cindy's and, and uh, <laughs> Gerald's were not exactly the best motives. Um, so, yeah, I think motives play a big part in it. And that's what PJ was getting at. 
that you can have the same scenario, but because the motives change, now it becomes something that was wrong and sinful. Okay, let's move on to number four. They minimized God's present provision. I am deeply persuaded that there is a direct connection between ingratitude and financial trouble. To the degree that we are content with what God has graciously and lovingly provided, to that degree we have immunized ourselves against the temptation to take our lives into our own hands and to use our money however we think best. A grateful heart focuses on the riches provided and not on the things that may be lacking. The greatest protection for Eve against the temptation of the serpent would have been a grateful heart. Her immediate response should have been, look at, look at how God has lavishly provided for us. Why would we ever want anything more? If she had focused on what she had been given and what had been provided, she would have had little interest in words of the tempter. This means that financial health and debt and trouble are the products of the meditations of your heart. If the eyes of your heart are focused on how God has provided for you way beyond anything you deserve so that you are filled with humble gratitude and wonder, then your thoughts won't be captured by all the things you don't have. If you're persuaded that no one knows better what you need than the Lord and that he has been faithful in meeting those needs, then you don't look toward the world with a needy and craving heart. You simply cannot separate debt and ingratitude. Debt would be much easier to solve if it were just a matter of too little money. It is made much more difficult because it almost always involves the cravings of our unthankful hearts. The next question is, how have you demonstrated your dissatisfaction with God's provision for you in the past? How have you demonstrated your dissatisfaction with God's provision in the past? That's kind of a hard question for me as to, on that. But, uh, well, Dennis, or, uh, Paul, I think you're given the context of what we're studying. That's the, that's the binging uh, we sometimes do in, in purchasing, where you will satisfy your dissatisfaction with what God has got going on providentially in your life by simply purchasing. If I purchase, then this, this void, this, this thing that, this, the routine, the, whatever it is that is dissatisfying you in the moment in your life, you think it, that you look towards the purchase to satisfy that. And that definitely shows that. I mean, it, that's the whole contrast there. Can I be content where God has me um, and, and, and I, I got to be careful with that because we're like what PJ and every others have said before. It's not wrong to be doing things strateg uh, strategically in your life, making investments, whether it's business or whatever, and you're, you're taking out and you're, you're, you are spending, but there's, a, there's a, a motive behind your spending that is a godly motive. And if we're just spending to gratify something that we think that we can't have 
we will be, in other words, I can get rid of this dissatisfaction if I just buy this. I'll get online and I'll get this and that'll make me happy. Then we're doing it, whatever it is. We're showing that we're dissatisfied in God because our motive is all wrong. We're using materialism to satisfy what only God can satisfy. Yeah, I really appreciate what you said, PJ. And I think it's a little bit of a hop, skip, and a jump over to what I was going to put forth for consideration. Because the spender takes a lot of the hits when we talk about this, but not, but not the saver, right? And the point that I would have all of us consider is that the spender and the saver can have the same sinful heart. So from a spending standpoint, it may be that you're not content with what God has given you and you spend, but you can have the same heart as a saver. You can meticulously save. I've seen it. (laughs) I've been there. And you can do really, really well with your money, and your heart is because you're not content with what God has has given you and you want to make sure that you're providing for yourself, right? So you either overspend to do it or you oversave to do it and you justify not going on a trip or doing something because of um, sinful motives. And the only difference is one bank account looks better than another. And at the end of the day, I think the trap is, is that we look at the bank account to determine the spiritual health. And that's not an accurate barometer. PJ's got his hand up. So if we're building out the profiles of sinners here, I add add another one to it. We got the spender, the saver, and I'd even say the giver. Matthew 6, 2, thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what, that, what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Uh, this is 100% been me. Like you give a gift and you find the first person to go get your commendations from for your gift. And um, I think think the testimony Lita gave about her family is such a blessing to think that here it's her daughter years later talking about the testimony and the witness to her that she experienced with the blessing of others um, with her family's wisdom uh, financially. And so I think in the same way that the spender and saver their heart is not for God in the same way the giver you could spend why you can be spending your money you're not even hoarding your gold you're not on the other end where you're spending it all on things you need you're giving it away but even the giver um, as soon as he's letting his left hand know what his right hand's doing his left hand's out there texting or tweeting out a, a notification of their giving Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. For the recording, that was Matthew 25, 37 through 40. 
they didn't remember the good works that they that they did. Certainly, someone who did took credit up front. They have their reward, but the true reward is um, forget forgetting about it because every good and perfect gift comes from God. What do you have that belongs to you? And if it doesn't belong to you, why do you boast? Right. So it's the Lord who justifies uh, the. You have the fair, the publican, and the and the sinner, and they're praying, and the one says, um, you know, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, and it's the Lord who justifies him as being righteous. So the one who doesn't self-justify is justified by the Lord as righteous. The one who self-justifies is condemned by the Lord as wicked. Well, I want to thank you all for participating today. Uh, I've learned something from you, and I hope you've you learned something from each other. Uh, so we're going to let's close in prayer now. Lord, we ask that you will help us to listen only to you, Lord, and not to the worldly voices we hear every day. Help us to desire only what you want us want for us. Help us to acknowledge that you know what is best for us. Help us to be satisfied with what you have provided for us. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.